I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Albert Borla to our show. Albert is the CEO of Pfizer, the world's largest pharmaceutical company. Albert found himself in an extraordinary position when the COVID pandemic struck. He'd been hired as the CEO of Pfizer just 15 months prior, and was in the middle of a transformation. He was called to a meeting with the President of the United States on March the 2nd, 2019, and asked to develop a vaccine. And only eight months later, Pfizer had achieved what many believe to be impossible, the creation of an efficacious, safe, and producible at scale mRNA vaccine within a tenth of the usual time. So Albert has written up this incredible project in a book called Moonshot, which is coming out shortly, Inside Pfizer's nine-month race to make the impossible possible, where he discusses the internal mobilization of Pfizer and the external mobilization that was required to make this happen. So congratulations on the, mostly the vaccine, of course, Albert, but also on writing up this incredible project in the book. And thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Martin. So Albert, your, your title of your book, Moonshot, I presume it's referring to Canada's famous call to action to NASA to put a man on the moon in 1969. In what ways was the development of a, a vaccine like a moonshot? It was equally challenging at the time. I would say even more challenging because at least Kennedy gave 10 years to people to achieve his vision. We gave uh, a tenth of the time, eight months, nine months. But um, in addition to being equally challenging, I believe also would be equally impactful to society, to the world. The side effects of Kennedy's moonshot was that technology that were used to enable a man to go to the moon and come back safely changed uh, the world because they were used in multiple different implications. I believe that the things that we were able to achieve, us and others during that race, I think also uh, will change the world, not only in terms of changing the course of history what in terms of the vaccine, but also in terms of the technologies that were, have been developed and the new ways of thinking in pharma and biopharma will change the way that we do things for the years to come. Now, uh, of course, your motivation for developing the vaccine, I guess, is clear. That's your mission as a pharmaceutical company. But I'm wondering, why did you choose to write a book? Uh, clearly, the book shares the story of this Moonshot project. But I'm wondering whether you were trying to perhaps do something else, like shift perceptions about vaccines or public health or the pharmaceutical industry. Why a book? There is an element that I wanted to set the record straight. I wanted to make sure that history will remember what happened the way that I saw it through my eyes. But also I thought that indeed what happened during those eight, nine months belongs to history and needs to be recorded. So let's dig into the, uh, the substance of the book. To my mind, it's about a huge change process. And there's the internal part of that, where you work very closely with the executive team and the board to not just to do what you normally do, but to, to mobilize and gain buy-in from a much more agile and rapid way of acting. And uh, I was curious that you use this, this motto, time is, is life. Normally, one might say time is money, but the motto of the project was time is life. Tell us about how you achieved this incredible cultural shift and mobilization. I think that we didn't achieve it during this period. Actually, we had achieved it before, and it is because of that shift that we were able to do what we did. 
it was not that we were lucky. I think we were ready for it. And uh, the changes we have done were not only changes in uh, infrastructure. It was not only changes in significant uh, investments in digital or in research, but uh, predominantly were changes that were aiming to create a new mindset, the mindset of being able to be nimble and quick with a scale of uh, a multinational, very big corporation. It was not easy to do. And I think it would have taken us way more years to embed this culture to the organization. In that aspect, COVID helped because during dramatic situations like a pandemic, people really will rise to levels that you never thought before and can take what you were preaching as a culture to levels that you never dreamed that they will. And once they do it, then the remaining of your organization, they have a very tangible proof that this can work. So right now, the biggest asset that Pfizer has following this pandemic is not the RNA technology. It is the reputation to the world, internally and externally. I think it is. And internally, this is translated into a culture. It is a belief that, indeed, if you aim high, you can achieve things that you wouldn't be able to, to dream. So it was clear that business as usual was not going to get the job done with respect to uh, timing. And I'm imagining that you had to perhaps remove some constraints in terms of decision-making or normal organizational practices. What were some of the constraints that you had to work on? One of the biggest constraints that uh, usually we face, it is the constraints that our success creates. When we have done things in a certain way for years, and particularly when we are successful in doing them, it's very difficult to be able to think differently and do things differently. And uh, when it was coming to, to clinical development, we were very, very good. So to ask our team to do things very, very differently was for them quite a challenge and required a mindset that was uh, very different than the mindset that typically we had. The other one, of course, it is that when uh, you deal with the big organizations that they are having to work on uh, complex projects, multiple disciplines, they have to get involved. And uh, depending on the level of expertise and uh, where it lies, in some disciplines, you need to go down three, four, five levels of management. So usually that slows down things. When uh, you need to make a decision, typically the minus four level, we will discuss, agree, and then we'll send it to minus three for approval. And uh, if uh, things stop there, that's fine. But if things need to go to minus two, then minus three will send comments and uh, we'll send it back and then eventually go to minus two. The, the process will, will happen again. We needed to change that completely. So we basically had one meeting that we were having three or four levels of management, maybe, in several disciplines that was needed, and all disciplines together. And uh, there was a clear decision maker in, in that meeting. It was me. As I wrote also in my book, I became kind of a project manager, although I'm not a good project manager. I know people that are doing that very professionally and admire their organizational skills, how they can manage a project really to the ultimate details. I'm not that. But the value of being able 
to have the CEO managing everything every second or third day, basically, for months with everyone there is what really removed every basically obstacle that you typically have in processes with large organizations. So double-clicking on um, decision-making, it was interesting to see that although you were moving very fast, you didn't always take the most obvious decision. For example, you took a decision to go with an untested mRNA technology rather than a more conventional vaccine technology. And I also uh, understand from the book that you, you didn't go with the first candidate that delivered results. You actually waited for the results from a second candidate. So I wonder whether you could tell us about how you balanced prudence and thoughtfulness with speed in decision-making. What, what was that like in the room? Well, it comes down to what is obvious is not always right. And um, if that was the case, we wouldn't follow some very counterintuitive paths. And uh, you mentioned two of them, selecting the RNA or selecting the second candidate for which we had very limited set of data. He looked better, but uh, way more uncertain. And the other one looked good enough to go with it. Again, the benefit of uh, having everyone in the room so that they can all express their views on a controversial issue and then uh, being able to realize that that's it. Within the time frame that you have, you won't get more data. A decision needs to be made and you heard everything. I think that was the basic principle of this Lightspeed project. So everybody was asked to speak by the spoke, and then eventually we moved. In fact, in both cases, I moved to the direction that the majority of the team recommended, although I was feeling nervous knowing that we are going into a path that it is really very counterintuitive. So let me talk about resilience. In some ways, it seems to me you invested massively in resilience. You looked for redundant manufacturing facilities, not just the capacity you needed, but some extra just in case. You looked at a diverse network of suppliers rather than depending on one supplier. You started to produce your own raw materials in areas where you hadn't previously done that. And presumably you learned a lot about the importance of resilience. And I'm wondering, will that be just a one-off for this project or, or do you see that uh, perhaps you'll be stressing resilience in decision-making and strategizing for Pfizer more moving forwards? A different way to say what you just described as resilience is we played to win. We were not holding back just in case if we lose, we didn't want to lose a lot. But we went uh, all hands on deck because we wanted, if we win, to make sure that we maximize everything. And um, that made us do things very differently. I, I will give you the example. You said that we started manufacturing raw materials. That went from highly sophisticated, technically, raw materials, like some form of lipids that were in short supply, and then we started ourselves manufacturing them in-house to ensure that we will have upper supply, but also to very bulky manufacturing that is not our cup of tea. For example, we started manufacturing ourselves dry ice. We set up a logistics chain that we had a huge, what we called uh, freezer farms, where they had hundreds of gigantic ultra-cold refrigerator freezers. And then in the same premises, we had a unit that was producing dry ice so that we can ship 
very effectively and very carefully. And we did that because, again, we couldn't leave any detail to chance. And imagine if we were able to, to master the mass production of such a sophisticated, high-tech, biotech product, and then eventually fail because we didn't have dry eyes to see it. Yes, I think resilience, it is a key element of every organization that aims high and doesn't let go before the organization achieves its goals. So let's come on to a decision which I'm imagining might have been a controversial one. Your team recommended a certain uh, philosophy for pricing and you decided to both go with a lower price than the team recommended and also for tiered pricing, depending upon country's ability to pay. I wanted to ask you a two-part question. Can you tell us about how you thought about that choice? And also, do you see this as, as being a one-time decision for this vaccine? Or have you had insights into how you might modify your pricing philosophy moving forwards? Actually, I think the pricing philosophy, the way that has been shaped in the pharma industry in the last few years, because there were some periods that it was not the right one, it is a good one. It is a philosophy that says your product needs to be priced based on the value that they bring to society. And there are ways that you can calculate. And I give the example. If you bring a medicine that you give to 100 people and 5% will get less heart attacks, then you calculate how much it will cost to give to 100 people the medicine and then calculate how much the system will save if five less people will have heart attacks because of your medicine. And then you try to, to come to a value. And that, of course, doesn't even take into consideration the gains of uh, avoiding human pain. So I wouldn't say that it was the team recommended. The team did what I asked them to do. So I said, calculate me the value of the product. And they came back and the value was really very high. The economic uh, losses that were at stake, even without taking into consideration the uh, savings on the economical system, just the savings on the healthcare system, they came to price that would be around five, six hundred dollars per dose, and still it will be cost effective. And then we realized that if we do that, that was a very, very high price for a vaccine. And we said we should not take this uh, avenue. And then what was the next one? We said, let's price it the same price that every other vaccine of this technology is priced. So no one can say that you take the advantage of a crisis like that and you are jumping the prices up. No, we are, we are pricing exactly if it was a new vaccine. And this is what the team did. But um, when I started realizing the amount of uh, vaccine that likely would be needed and uh, what that would do in the cash flows of the, of the governments and all of that, this is when I sensed that we are maybe missing an opportunity here to, to remove completely the price out of the equation as to what happened, right? So instead of going to what is a normal price of a product of this technology, and in the US it is between $150 and $250. That's per dose of a new technology vaccine. I asked what is the cheapest vaccine? And then the cheapest vaccines were the flu vaccines, very commoditized vaccines for adults. That was between 20 and 70, 50. 70 the high end. 2030 was the cheap, and we said, let's go with the cheapest. So this is how things um, evolved. And we said for the low-income countries, 
we said the price should, should go at cost. And for the middle-income countries, the price should be half of what that was. Those decisions were made very early in the process. So in reality, price was really out of the equation. It was everyone could afford it. And even for very, very, very poor countries that potentially they couldn't even afford the cost, we were able to make a deal with the U.S. government where the U.S. government, the Biden administration, bought from us one billion doses at cost. So we didn't make money, we didn't lose money. And then they gave it completely free to the poorest countries of the world. The agreement that we did was to go to 96 poorest countries in the world. And I think that is one of the reasons why we find ourselves now, after a lot of controversies, in the right part of history. So this was an enormous change for the world, but enormous change for Pfizer too. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about locking in and sustaining some of the changes that you made. I, I can imagine that you, you might be thinking, well, some of this was special to a very urgent program and maybe wouldn't become part of our regular operating procedure. And there are probably other things that you're thinking, yeah, we'd like to keep that. We'd like to operationalize that. How do you think about scaling and sustaining some of the change that you uh, made and how you resist a slippage back to business practices as usual. We discussed a lot in Pfizer how we will be able to replicate that. And indeed, some views that uh, what happened happened because uh, it was such a major crisis and that uh, people did things that they would never do if uh, we are under normal circumstances. And I refuse to accept uh, that. I believe that people will do the same if they know that we can bring quickly the cure of cancer. I believe people will do very much the same. And it is a question of a mindset. It is a question of resources. And it is a question of process. And clearly in a project that was called Lightspeed, resources were unlimited. The mindset was we play to win no matter what. And the processes, because of my involvement, were extremely streamlined. So we started trying to replicate this for very, very important projects. And the second project that we called Lightspeed, and uh, we used basically the same principles, was the project that gave us the oral treatment for coronavirus. And uh, many people would say, well, yes, but it was coronavirus, yes, yet involved into that. And yes, to a certain degree, but it was not the same pressure bring us a treatment as it was bring us a vaccine. And then there are um, other four projects that are running right now that we have called Lightspeed Project. We Lightspeed them. And they are cutting through several therapeutic areas uh, in oncology, in uh, rare diseases, and even in other vaccines, and even in areas that they are uh, more digital project in nature, digital health in nature, rather than a new molecule or small or large. So I believe that that is going to dramatically change the way that we think in Pfizer. And that the next step that we are thinking is how we can create those projects, not with the supervision of the CEO, but under the supervision of people lower into the organization that still can uh, be the pilots in command of this project. And despite the fact that peers are getting involved, it's very clear that one will make the decision and that's it. 
And this new way of operating, the light speed way of operating, did you, did you write down the principles? Have you, have you codified it? And if so, what are some of the principles of operating at light speed that you codified? It was basically everybody express an opinion. Everybody provides input in a debate. What's the next decision? And someone can make the call. I think this is by far the most important. Clearly, if they don't have money, nothing will work. So resources need to be there. So you need to allocate resources that uh, they can work. And clearly, to move at that speed, people need to go above and beyond. So clearly, you need to have a mindset, a purpose-driven mindset. But I'm, I'm doing that for something bigger than just to, to be successful at Pfizer. I'm doing that for the world. But the most difficult to achieve it is that when there are disagreements as to which way we should go, someone can make the call without the need to paralyze the organization before the peers agree with or without a new date. So let me ask you a question about external complexity, because, of course, um, you could control what Pfizer did, but you couldn't control politics, media, and those sorts of things. And we recently just reviewed the results of the performance of all the systems of society, the pharmaceutical industry, the public health system, the political system, and so on. And it seemed clear to us that the, the social and political systems perhaps performed least well. And I'm thinking about things like the credibility of the voice of science and the social division that caused very different reactions to, to vaccine and mask mandates and so on. And so my question to you is, as you went through this process, what areas did you see where our social and political systems could perhaps do a better job next time? And is there anything that companies can do to make sure that we indeed get the systems that we deserve so that society as a whole is, is resilient and not just, for instance, the drug or the specific policy? I think there were several parts of uh, the government, several parts of institutions that they, they did a pretty good job. A very good example of it is FDA. FDA, I think, did a tremendous job in terms of collaborating, enabling, but also regulating and controlling. They were very tough regulators, but they were very fast. So they wouldn't take the normal three or four months to come back to you. They would come back to you within three or four days. And they wouldn't come back always saying yes. Actually, in most of the cases, they said no in terms of what they want to see. But they were very, very helpful because they were working collaboratively with you and they were trying to understand the situation. I think academia and biotech and uh, industry, they had formed a very vibrant life sciences ecosystem. We were very lucky that the crisis found us at the point that this vibrant ecosystem was at the peak of its performance. And this is why we're able to have diagnostics and, and treatments and even uh, respirators and even some of the other things that were needed. WHO, again, WHO has a very critical role to play. I was seriously concerned when I saw that the US, in the middle of the pandemic, we left WHO just to, to move ourselves, and clearly for political reasons. But that being said, WHO should have done a better job in preparing the poorest countries to receive and absorb vaccinations. They spend most of their time on rhetorics, you need to give more vaccines to the poorest countries at times that uh, supply was uh, short, rather than preparing those countries for the time that 
supplying will not be short and vaccines will come there. And we saw that in the first part of the year, these countries didn't have enough access to vaccines. But in the second part of the year, they had more than enough. And actually, the African CDC asked us to stop sending vaccines because they were not ready. There was not infrastructure with, with vaccinators or vaccination centers. Hesitancy was very, very high. There was not an educational campaign about the benefits of vaccination and the threats of COVID, etc., etc. So, again, I think that's an example of what we could have done better. So, unfortunately, our time is limited today, Albert. So, um, let me wrap up maybe with a, a couple of personal questions. In your book, you, you talk about your personal development and challenges as a leader. And I'm wondering, in retrospect, how do you think you're a different leader now? Where did, where did the experience stretch you? Martin, I think that uh, every year I'm a different leader at the end of the year than in the beginning. And many times I say that the moment that I realize that the year is ending and I haven't changed, I haven't developed, I know it's the time for me to go. But true for all the almost 30 years of my professional career in this uh, industry. But I would say that when you are under this type of uh, difficult times, your development also is accelerating a lot. So I had to do things that uh, I was not experienced or prepared to do, like uh, handling politics at uh, the highest uh, levels of political life, or being able to propose very risky approaches to, to the board uh, while I was, let's say, in the beginning of my, of my tenure as uh, CEO. I've learned a lot. I think if you ask me what is the key message, it's not that I learn it now, but it's very clear what has been embedded now to me, that uh, people, they don't know what they can and what they cannot do. And if anything, they have a tendency to severely underestimate what they can achieve. And uh, you will be surprised if you ask them and you insist that they should deliver way more. Yes, I think Mandela was the one who said that things are impossible until somebody does them. So uh, finally, Albert, is there a next moonshot that you, you want to tackle? Another crusade in, in healthcare now that you have these new, improved, agile capabilities as, as a company? Oh, of course, of course. Human health is facing a lot of challenges and uh, the situation is not even static. The challenges are getting up because the demographics are driving so. People are living longer and this means that new diseases that did not exist before or they were insignificant, now they are becoming very important. And that adds to the current set of unmet medical needs. So I truly believe that the next decade, we are going to have a scientific renaissance that will be driven by advancements in biology and technology that are coming together to create synergistic effects. And I would like Pfizer to play a very dynamic key role in uh, harnessing the power of this combination and delivering uh, solutions, uh, breakthroughs that change patients' lives. Well, thanks so much for sharing this incredible uh, story of the Moonshot Project with us today, Albert. Thank you. So I've been talking to Albert Buller, the CEO of Pfizer, about his new book, Moonshot, Inside Pfizer's nine-month race to make the impossible possible, which is uh, just out in March 2022 from uh, Harper Business. And I strongly recommend it as a, an interesting book about an agile transformation of a company to indeed achieve things which were previously not thought to be possible. 
If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. As always, we welcome your feedback. And thank you again, Albert.